5: Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: This is a CBC Podcast.
6: I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and this is Podcast Playlist. Every week, we bring you a selection of some of the best podcasts around. And together, we listen to so many great shows this year. So today, we're going to look at some of the best podcasts of 2023. At least we think so anyway. And by we, I mean the rest of the podcast playlist crew who are all sitting here looking at me in person, which is very exciting. Um, so they're going to bring their favorite picks of the year. Please say hello, everyone. Hi. Hi. It's is so cool as everybody's here. Okay, so it's been a while since we've done this. So why don't we go around, introduce ourselves, um, and please give us a fun fact so all of our voices will be more easily identifiable to all the listeners. Like, I'm Leah, and I can balance a spoon on my nose. Now you, Cecil.
5: Hi, my name's Cecil Fernandez. I'm executive producer here at CBC Podcast, And a fun fact about me is that I love to cook. But I don't like to eat breakfast.
6: Oh. So two meals a day for me. Okay, okay.
5: Do you like to cook breakfast? No, I'm not very good at it. (laughs) I don't have enough practice at it. Okay, anti-breakfast. Not very good, yeah.
7: Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Kelsey, yes. Howdy! I am Kelsey. I'm an associate producer on podcast playlist. And a fun fact about me is I can burp the alphabet. Oh wow! Wow. Since we're in an enclosed space
6: today, I'm gonna. I'll wait till to (laughs) experiment and hear that. Your ears. I'm very fascinated
8: about that. That's very interesting. Kate, how about you? My name's Kate. I'm a senior producer at CBC Podcasts and a fun fact about me actually that Lee and I were chatting about today is that I used to be an assistant to an insurance fraud investigator before I got back into broadcasting. So very spy-like job.
9: Or
4: perhaps a very podcast-like
10: job. (laughs) Honestly, all your
8: stories sounded like they could be a podcast.
6: Yes. Uh, Julian, what about you? Any investigative insurance fraud stories?
4: Uh, no, uh, okay. but let me back up. Hi, I'm Julian <laughs> Uzielli. I'm a producer here at Podcast Playlist. Um, I don't have any insurance fraud investigation stories, but my neighbors recently who live uh, in the house behind me were charged with uh, accessory to murder. So like that could be a podcast. <laughs> oh,
9: wow. Uh,
4: yeah, it's, they're, they're not good neighbors.
6: <laughs> okay, I think we're going to branch off Podcast Playlist into like a special <laughs> series where we just talk about what's happening in our lives. Those were actually things that I didn't know about any of you so okay are you guys ready to present the number one picks to the world that you picked yes yes okay here we go so Cecil what do you think was the best podcast of the year
5: so my favorite podcast of this year is ghost story from Wondery and Pineapple Street Studios Host Tristan Redman is a seasoned journalist who doesn't believe in ghosts, but weird things happened in the bedroom he lived in as a teenager. Years later, when he discovers that other people who have lived in the same house have been visited by the ghost of a faceless woman, he's curious because it just so happens that Tristan's childhood home is right next door to the house where his wife's great-grandmother, Naomi Dancy, was murdered in 1937, killed by, get this Leah, uh, two gunshots to the face. Hands faceless. faceless. Okay, I gotcha. So, could there be a connection between this ghost and the murder? Tristan decides to investigate, and soon finds himself going where no son-in-law should go—deep into his wife's family history, asking questions no one wants answered.
6: What is it that grabbed you because you listen to so many podcasts. A lot. So I'm even fascinated that you electively listen to anything else, but what what kept you going in this one?
5: You know, I think like a lot of the stories that I get to listen to, a lot of the podcasts I guess get to listen to, the good ones have a lot of twists in them, a lot of turns, mm. and this one is has no shortage of them. The series starts in one place, starts with one theory that Naomi was murdered by her brother and it's what the family has long believed. Mm. But Tristan's investigation quickly moves to another theory that the family patriarch, Dr. John Dancy, who they affectionately call Father, could be the potential murderer.
10: Hmm.
6: Okay. And so, and I'm just curious, do you believe in ghosts? Like, do you, are you superstitious at all?
5: Nope. Nope, not at all. (laughs) And it's pretty clear that the host Tristan isn't either. And that, for me, is what really works about the series. Ghost story isn't hokey. It's not campy. As a matter of fact, at one point in the series, I had to remind myself that this was called Ghost Story because Mm. it really feels like a proper investigation. Tristan is an Al Jazeera journalist and his storytelling reflects that.
6: Hmm. Well, let's listen to some of it now. And I'm going to set up this clip. So Tristan and his brother-in-law, Hugh, are reading through the statement Fader gave to the police. They've learned that Naomi's new life insurance policy may have motivated her brother to kill her. But things aren't adding up. Like, why would a brother murder his sister over a life insurance policy that only her husband would benefit from? So retired Scotland Yard detective Jackie Malton joins them to reanalyze the witness account. And just a warning, this clip contains graphic descriptions of violence and self-harm.
11: About 15 years ago, Morris took my wife to an insurance company had her examined and insured...
12: So this is Feather's take on the insurance situation. He says that years ago, Morris brokered an insurance policy on Naomi's life. Morris is a kind of amateur agent, so he got a small commission for doing this, like a finder's fee, every year. And even though Feather never asked Morris to broker a policy, that's been their life insurance coverage for years on Naomi. The
11: final payment is due this week... Morris knew this as he was drawing commission on
12: the policy. But now that policy is expiring, which is why Feather took out a new policy on Naomi's life. Except this time he doesn't use Morris as the broker. So Morris is about to lose his yearly commission. And because Morris wasn't bringing a lot of money in, that small commission may have been a big part of his income. Feather knows this. He knows it's going to upset Morris. So he's been trying to hide it from him. But on the night of the murder, Morris happens upon the paperwork. I came in
11: silently and I saw him sheepishly shutting his door. Soon after, Naomi
12: gets home and Morris confronts her.
11: After my wife came home from business, he waited till I was out of the room and said to her, I hear you are being reinsured." I heard this through the door and went back. I made signs to her to say no. She said, "'Has Jack been telling you?' meaning me. I chimed in and said, "'Ah, but nothing has been settled, Morris.' He looked at me and then at her and said, "'Well, if that's the case, you need not expect to live to draw the money.' I said, "'Don't be ridiculous, Morris. No one lives to draw their own insurance money.' He said, "'Anyhow, you can go your own way if you left me out of it, but I think you are mean.' My wife said, you know, Morris, if you had it, you'd only drink it.
10: But where's the evidence to support that? Where is the evidence to support that? Now, the only way that we know that this is true according to Dr Dancy is that Dr Dancy conveniently sees Tribe leaving his office where he had left the insurance policies. Hey-ho! He knew because he'd been snooping around my house.
12: Feather lays out the insurance as Morris’s motive, that Morris was so upset to lose his yearly commission that he killed his sister. But Feather doesn’t point out three important facts: One, that at the time of the murder, both policies are in effect: Morris's policy which was about to expire, and Feather’'s new policy. Two that Feather is the beneficiary on both of them, which means, three, upon Naomi's death, Feather stood to gain £6,500, equivalent to $450,000 in today's money.
10: Any investigation where there is an insurance policy, red flags, red flags, red flags.
12: Back to the night of the murder, Father tells us that Naomi and Morris have just finished arguing about the insurance.
11: I sent my wife to bed and went and peeled an orange for her and told her to go to sleep as she was tired, and I would write to the children and get it off tonight.
12: You know what happens next. What follows is the back and forth between Father and Morris that we heard last episode, but I think you'll hear it differently this time. At about 1.10am... Fader says he hears Morris leave his room, and then he hears gunshots.
11: I went to the door and saw Morris advancing towards me. I said, Morris, what have
12: you done? Father and Morris are both standing on the landing, in between Father's study and Naomi's bedroom. Father sees Morris pointing the revolver at his head, so in a split second, Father does that stealth manoeuvre thing to escape being killed. He switches off the lights, plunging the landing into darkness.
11: I switched the light out and dropped flat to the floor. He shot as I fell and the bullet whizzed by my ear and went through the back window. I laid quite still and pretended that I was hit.
12: He's pretending to be injured and listens closely
11: for what Morris does next. He then went into the lavatory and closed the door behind him. I went to the lavatory door and tried to force it. I found it was locked from inside, and I called on him to come out and give me the gun. He said, stand away from those panels, or I'll shoot you like a dog.
12: After facing off with Morris through the lavatory door, Fader goes to check on Naomi in the bedroom next door.
11: She had been shot through both eyes, and blood was spurting from one of her eyes.
12: Eventually, after seeing that Naomi was dead, Feather goes back to the locked bathroom door and breaks it down with his shoulder. He finds Morris sitting cross-legged, with his head bent over.
11: A razor fell from his hand as I pushed the door open. The revolver was on the floor by his right-hand side. I felt for his pulse and found him pulseless. I pulled his head back and found that he had a severe gash in his throat. The lavatory was saturated with blood, and he had blood on his right hand.
10: So... Can I stop there? Yeah. So
12: One final point here from Jackie. Jackie noticed something in the police file, a discrepancy between how Feather found Morris and how the police found Morris. At
10: this point that I just want to raise now was not in his original statement, but it comes from the chief constable.
12: When the police get to the scene, they find Morris dead with the razor clasped in his hand. Of course, Feather has just described a very different scenario.
10: A razor fell from his hand as I pushed the door open. Now, this is obviously a contradiction to what the police officer sees. So immediately the police officers will say, well, hang on a minute, you said that you saw it fall to the floor. I saw it in his hand. How did it get into his hand? And at this point, Dancy says, well, actually, I put the razor back into his hand.
7: Do they say why?
10: They didn't ask why from anything that I can see on the file.
12: Then the police noticed something else weird. Morris Tribe's hands were suspiciously clean. He had very little blood on them, despite having just cut his throat. So the cops go to Fader and ask him something like, do you have any idea why Morris's hands would be so clean? And Feather gives an explanation.
10: He says he took the pulse of his brother-in-law to see that he was dead. And in order to take his pulse, he washes his hands. He washes tribes' hands to do that.
13: He washes the blood off the dead man's hands?
10: Yes. How do you understand that? I don't know. I don't know why he would do that. You wouldn't touch the evidence. Why would you touch the evidence? Why would you it.
6: From Wondery, that was a clip from Ghost Story. The show is hosted by Tristan Redman. Their team includes Annie Brown, Chloe Priscinos, Jess Hackle, Zandra Ellen, Emerald O'Brien, Natalie Pett, John Lovell, and Maximo Anderson. The podcast Ghost Story was chosen by our executive producer, Cecil Fernandez. Thank you, Cecil. Thank you. You're listening to Podcast Playlist. I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and today our entire team is here to share their picks for best podcasts of the year. Next up, our senior producer, Kate Evans. Kate, what is your pick?
8: So my pick is The Retrievals from Serial, and Kelsey and I were chatting earlier about the fact that there is a bit of a theme with our picks, which they are a bit on the dark side, and this story is intense, but it's incredibly engrossing, so it it really tells the true story of patients who went to the Yale Fertility Center to pursue pregnancy, they wanted to get pregnant, and these were women who— had really struggled with fertility. They really wanted pregnancy to happen. And so they went through this procedure called egg retrieval. But the surgery caused them excruciating pain during and after the surgery. And
6: is it supposed to be painful at all? Or was that unusual?
8: Yes. It's really not supposed to be painful because clinics will give painkillers for the procedure because it's really invasive. But their pain wasn't taken seriously uh, by the doctors and nurses who were present. And some of them said that the feeling was so intense, they could actually feel what was happening inside of their bodies. They could feel the procedure happening. Wow. But because they were so desperate, they would just continue through the pain because for a lot of them, this was their one shot at getting pregnant. And so they just chose to kind of go through with it. And then what the podcast reveals is that they were not overreacting. They didn't have low pain tolerance. In fact, the nurse at the Yale Clinic was stealing fentanyl and replacing it with a saline solution. So they were actually going through these procedures with zero pain management whatsoever. Oh it's brutal. And,
6: and so what did you find so compelling about this series?
8: I mean, there are a lot of really topical themes that run throughout the personal stories. Uh, you know, the opioid crisis, of course, because the nurse had addiction issues. That's why she was stealing the fentanyl, and then the question of why do doctors so often dismiss women's pain? I do think that that is a universal issue, regardless of gender. We've all experienced a doctor not taking our issues seriously. That said. You know, Cecil was saying earlier that for him, a really great podcast is a podcast that has a lot of twists and turns. For me, it's a show that stays with me, and I could not stop thinking about this series. The women who are willing to share their stories and relive this whole experience are so inspiring. They're incredibly strong people, and they articulate this whole journey so well. And at the end of the day, Yale really tried to sidestep responsibility And I think this podcast did a great job of trying to hold someone accountable for this. Hmm.
6: Okay, well, let's listen to a bit of it now. This is the first episode, actually, we're going to hear of the series. These patients have just undergone their first round of egg retrieval procedures. And just a warning, this clip contains graphic descriptions of pain and medical procedures. So please take care while listening.
0: When the retrieval is over, the women are wheeled out to the recovery room. And one of the first things that happens is that they try to come up with an explanation for their pain.
13: They put you into the recovery room and that's where you meet with whoever you were with. And I just remember that's when I had my phone back and I was texting my sister-in-law because she was my confidant for all of this, having been through that. And um, and she was just replying like, oh my God, how could you, what do you mean you felt everything? And I'm like, I and I was just like, you know, just explaining to her. I'm like, I don't know what's wrong. Like... So, and I even one of the texts I said I said I think I'm immune to fentanyl because like I was like I don't think it works on
0: me. I'm not sensitive to fentanyl, is a common theory. And I remember when the
14: procedure was done. You know, my family sort of. You know, we have a family text that's ongoing, and and I just remember texting them that, you know, it's hard to believe that we have a, a fentanyl. Epidemic where people are addicted because it did
0: nothing for me. Not all of the women were alert during their procedures. Some were more deeply sedated. They were so out of it during the retrieval that they don't really remember it, or only kind of. The pain hits when they come to. It was bad instantly, and it shouldn't really be bad instantly.
14: Like, you shouldn't wake up and be in like horrific, like nightmarish pain. But I woke up and I was, I mean, like, it felt like someone had been inside me and, like, gutted me. Yeah, it was like a gutted feeling. It was like
0: someone had been inside me, scraped me hollow. It was burning. In a way, it is more confusing for the wake-up-later patients. They're not matching each stab of pain to the needle on the screen. It hurts a lot, but it's less explicable. And because of that, scarier. You know, your mind just goes to the worst possible places. I, You know, I'm thinking, am
6: am I bleeding, you know? am, Am I bleeding internally? Is this like a pain is,
0: normally a pain is a sign, is protective, right? It tells you something's wrong. There's a lot of uncertainty in the recovery room. An elevated blood pressure. A nurse running around to get ginger ale. A doctor coming by to say, there are fewer eggs than we expected. Are you sure you only want us to fertilize half of them? It's all just very overwhelming, and on top of it, some of the women feel like they're being rushed out of the clinic. Julia is one of them.
13: I remember vomiting. They were giving me some some fluids. I was um, very uncomfortable. Um, there was no way I could walk. They put me in a wheelchair and wheeled me out and I just I just I just had this feeling like this is not this is not right.
0: Julia is 31 years old, and already a college professor. This morning when her husband drove to the clinic, she'd been frantic. There was work on a bridge near their house, and they got stuck. There's only a short window to retrieve the eggs before you ovulate them, and Julia was worried she would miss it. When she arrived at the clinic, she felt a huge relief, like, we made it, both we made it on time, and we made it to this day. Now she's feeling something she never expected. At home, she goes upstairs and gets into bed. I fell asleep for a
13: little while and then I woke up and I was nervous. I had a we had a babysitter here uh watching my daughter and I just, you know, you wake up you're like, "Oh my god, I who's with my kid? I need to yeah. um and I walked a, a few steps. To try and go down the stairs, and I realized I I really had gone too far from the bed. Mm-hmm. But by this point, the pain was excruciating. I would say, um, and I turned to go back to lay down in my bed again, and I pa- I mean, I don't remember this, but I I blacked out or passed out, mm-hmm. um, and I woke up on the floor, um, uh, and my
0: my my I kind of busted my lip open. Julia calls the clinic, and they tell her that she should go to the ER. She's in so much pain that she can't bend enough to get into a car. An ambulance is called, and when Julia gets to the hospital, they check her out. The retrieval is a safe procedure, but things can go wrong. Your ovary can strangulate. A major artery can get punctured. But none of the obvious things are wrong, and nobody can explain what is. Back home over the weekend... Julia calls the on-call doctor at the clinic multiple times. By Sunday, I sort of got the sense I was annoying him. Julia keeps waiting for a call from her official doctor. By Tuesday, she still hasn't heard from him. It was impossible for me to understand how he hadn't
13: called me by this point. But I called his office on Tuesday, uh, basically, you know, saying, I need to talk to you. Um, I, wrote, I wrote down what he said, and I've, I've kept this note since that time he said he was not alarmed but perplexed and surprised uh at my experience um those words i guess ring pretty hollow uh now right um knowing that there was a pattern of of many women who had extreme inexplicable uh pain after the egg retrieval
0: what did you make of that language like at the in the moment perplexed and surprised? Um
13: It was I mean I guess uh I I I, I, I felt crazy. I mean, yeah. I I I felt I mean, you're at, by this point. I'm asking myself, like, am I being difficult? Am, am I? I mean, am I? Am, I mean, you just you just question uh, your your sense of self, like your your ability to uh, assess your situation
0: mm-hmm.
13: rationally, which is very disconcerting when that happens. Because at least at the end of the day, you have that right. Uh, it, you go, you you start thinking about your whole life, right? Like. I'm a pretty high energy person. Like I take care of a toddler. I have a PhD. I have a job. Like I, I run marathons in my free time. Like I'm not, not, you know, like you have all these parts of your life that make you feel like that give you this sense of like who you are. And then I just felt like, like they were treating me like I was like nuts, you know, for, for, for still, you know, uh, being in pain and just, um, having a, what I would call a, a difficult time. You know, I just left the office, uh, I mean, crying, you know. Um, I just felt like like nobody, nobody cares. That's the way I would describe how I felt in the days after. Like, nobody gives a crap um, that, that this was uh, so hard for me.
6: That was from Serial in the New York Times. That was The Retrievals. It's hosted by Susan Burton. Their team includes Laura Starcheski, Julie Snyder, Miki Meek, Katie Mingle, Ira Glass, Ben Phelan, Caitlin Love, Phoebe Wang, and Michelle Navarro. That was a clip from our senior producer, Kate Evans. Thank you so much, Kate. Thank you. This is podcast playlist. And today on the show, the entire team is here with me today in studio to share their picks for the best podcast of the year. And now it's time for associate producer Kelsey Cueva. Hello.
7: Hi, thank you for that intro. Oh, my gosh, of course. So what do you have for us today? I feel like I've talked about this podcast all year. The Redemption of Jar Jar Binks is my pick. It's hosted by Dylan Marin, and it looks at the Star Wars character Jar Jar Binks, who was widely hated after he debuted in The Phantom Menace
6: this was also on my long list. It's such a good podcast and I got to speak with Dylan about this show earlier this year. I have to say it was it was a great conversation and I had never even seen The Phantom Menace and I listened to all of this. So so what did you like about this podcast?
7: Now that you say that, I actually haven't either. I haven't watched any Still of the Star Wars prequels. Yeah, You haven't seen of, any of them? Not the prequels. I've seen them like the rest of the movies onward.
4: So just to clarify, Kelsey, you produced an interview <laughs> and Leah, you conducted an interview <laughs> <laughs> about a character who neither of you have any familiar. I know
7: about about I the know, character, yeah. but I hadn't seen the movie. I know about his influence yeah. in pop culture, <laughs> yeah. and that's what this podcast touches on. Yeah. That's how good we are. That's yeah. how to frame that. That's yeah. how and amazing that's how great Dylan is at filling in his listeners in the cultural context. Yeah.
4: Did yeah. it make you want to watch the movie?
6: Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, After get you. I'll get there. I'll get there. Yeah, it's on my list. Um, oh. So... You know, he also hosts another podcast called Conversations with People Who Hate Me, where he either talks to his own detractors or kind of mediates conversations between people in online feuds. Good on him because I, I can't do that work myself.
7: Right. I Yeah, I know. I have so much respect for the work that he does. And it's great that you mention uh, that because the redemption of George R. Binks was actually born out of his other podcast, Conversations with People Who Hate Me. He originally wanted to mediate a conversation between a Jar Jar Binks hater and Ahmed Best, the actor who plays Jar Jar, but he realized that there was way, way more to explore surrounding Jar Jar's debut. You know, the show looks at themes like racism, representation in media, and internet culture, particularly the dogpiling that you see online and its real effects on people. And despite the fact that The Phantom Menace was released in 1999, we see that the way people interacted online back then isn't that far off from today.
6: Yeah, absolutely. You can see this kind of template that is built at that time. So let's listen to some of the series now. We're going to hear Dylan speak with early internet architect Ethan Zuckerman and producer Amy Gaines McQuaid as they kind of sift through old hate websites dedicated to Jar Jar Binks.
1: So in addition to com there were actually quite a few other anti-Jar-Jar websites. And these were the kind of websites that Ahmed was encountering. There was JarJarBinksMustDie.com, the Jar Jar hate webpage. You get the idea. They popped up within days of the film's release. Ethan alerted me to another webpage that he
3: found. I was able to find um, the Kill Jar Jar Binks Now webpage. God bless. And what I thought was so interesting about it is that this piece is part of a Jar Jar Binks hate web ring. To extend the metaphor,
1: sucks.com was a lone haunted house. The Jar Jar Binks hate web ring, though, creates a sort of haunted housing development.
3: Web rings were a way to navigate from one personal homepage to another. And it was this idea that if you wanted to talk about Star Wars and someone else wanted to talk about Star Wars, you could link your pages together and you could navigate from one to the next of them. But what this suggests to me is in 1999, there were enough people posting Jar Jar Binks hate websites to have a Jar Jar Binks hate web ring which really does sound like kind of a very specific sub-community in all of this. Amy and
1: I poke around the Kill Jar Jar Binks Now page that's in this new subcommunity. Greeting us as we enter is a sort of mission statement.
14: He says, if Jar Jar was in a Disney movie, which, joke's on you, it's now a Disney movie, where he should yeah. have been, <laughs> uh, yeah, I would have had absolutely no problem with him. Just like... I might not like Big Bird, but I have no desire to kill him, nor do I hate him for anything. But, in all caps, Jar Jar was a character that was in a movie that I have waited forever for and was totally unnecessary comic relief. He was a child's character, and his slapstick immature antics didn't belong in Star Wars.
1: This was a common refrain in many of these complaints, that Jar Jar is a kid's character in what they wanted to be a grown-up movie.
14: Also, just because I have a webpage called Kill Jar Jar Binks Now doesn't mean if I saw Jar Jar Binks on the street one day, I would find the first sharp object I could find and assault him. I just dislike him and decided to make a humorous webpage about it. It's funny. Laugh a little. And if you don't find it funny, move on. This feels
1: incredibly recognizable. This act of self-protection by calling everything just a joke. There's almost no comeback to this. If you're offended, you're part of the problem. You're a pearl-clutching normie who needs to lighten up. Anyway, off my soapbox. Amy and I keep clicking around.
14: I mean, he's saying, even though I have a webpage called Kill Jar Jar Binks Now, doesn't mean I would harm him. But then...
1: (gasps) Okay. Here is why Amy just gasped. As Amy was talking, she left her mouse hovering over the link that reads, Kill him now. And you know how when you hover your cursor over a hyperlink, there's a box of alt text that appears? Well, an alt text box has just appeared, and it reads, Kill the f- right now. Don't delay. It's worth noting that this was a read that some people had about Jar Jar, that the character was gay. It's something Ahmed was even asked about directly. It's hard to tell, though, if this piece of alt text is a reference to that read, or if it's true homophobia from the website's creator, Or if it's just that good old-fashioned atmospheric homophobia that hung like a cloud for so many of us in the 90s. The cloud that taught us that gay and bad and annoying were all synonyms. The cloud that deluded us into thinking that gay jokes were truly funny. Jokes that some of us laughed along with, sometimes even the loudest so that that terrifying eye of suspicion would never fall on us. It's going to sound so sad, but just know that I'm totally okay and I'm really glad that we saw this. But I think there's something like seeing that kind of language in that kind of font, because the font is all preserved. No one has updated these pages, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, it it doesn't have... It's, it's like none of these are designed by Squarespace. <laughs> you know, they're like... They're all basic HTML that was probably coded by the person who made the website who knows a thing or two about HTML. And there was something so dark about seeing it because it's like... I remember websites like these that were like of the time. And I remember just like this like darkness I would feel as I was like this closeted kid... Sifting through these websites, navigating past a minefield of gay slurs and gay jokes or like almost gay slurs, like you know, and it's um, it like hurts to see I'm sharing this all out loud, I guess, because if I feel this way, I cannot imagine what Ahmed felt as he was sifting through this, like, new digital public square.
6: From the TED Audio Collective, that was The Redemption of Jar Jar Binks. It's hosted by Dylan Marin, who produces the show with Amy Gaines McQuaid and Jacob Smith. And it was brought to us by associate producer Kelsey Cueva. Thanks, Kelsey. Anytime. This is Podcast Playlist. Today, we're listening to the best podcasts of 2023 as chosen by us, the esteemed Podcast Playlist team sitting with me in studio today. It's very exciting. Um, Who's next? Well, Leah, yes. Now it's it's your turn to share. (laughs) Could
8: you please tell us about your pick?
6: Yeah. So one of my favorites this year, and it was a long list, hard to choose, but uh, I landed on Bloodlines from the BBC and CBC. Um, It came out pretty recently and their season just wrapped kind of towards the end of November. And, you know, I picked this one because I like podcasts that just teach me things about worlds that I never knew before. And this one did just that. It's a really gripping seven-part podcast. Um, It's hosted by journalist Poonam Tanasia, and it begins as she searches for a three-year-old named Salman. He's the grandchild of a British citizen who went missing, and amid the search for him, Poonam encounters Dure Ahmed, a Canadian in a Syrian detention camp. I I learned so much listening to this series, as I said, and really what it opened me up to is knowing that now they're Thousands of children like Salman with roots in Canada, the UK and the US and beyond, many of whom are still trapped in basically prison camps in the Syrian desert and they have no way to come back home. I don't want to say too much more about this story because it goes into such... Unexpected and astonishing places. But I do believe it's a testament to how important investigative journalists are to the world right now. I really just could not stop listening to this one.
8: Yeah, you know, we featured this in our new and notable November episode, and it's a really unassuming show. But what's great about it is it just pulls you in, and the story is so much more epic than you're expecting. Mm-hmm. But for those who haven't listened to it yet, Leah, can you just fill us in a little bit on what we're about to hear in this clip? Sure. So in this clip, the journalist
6: that I mentioned, Poonam, and her team enter into this prison camp um, to look for Salman. And they see up close the danger still facing the children there.
9: Al-Hol camp is a sprawl of dirty white tents. More than 50,000 people live here, surrounded by concrete fences and razor wire. It's a violent and brutal place, where IS, and its ideology, endures.
15: So you see, the checkpoints here are more serious also. They took the paper, they have to check with the administration on everybody that are, if they are really expecting us or not.
9: High above this whole region are spy planes, drones, balloons, satellites. Russian, American, Turkish if they care to some intelligence operative somewhere could probably zoom in and see the color of the vehicle we're in yeah our security is tight here it looks quiet children are the only ones that seem to be out the young children and those tents look pretty scrappy some of them are patched up barely held together did the tents just go on? There were just rows and rows and rows and rows of tents. Juan in front of us, armoured vehicles. Now that tells us something. Last time I was in an armoured vehicle is usually during a military embed. So they need that now to get through the camp.
15: There were no armoured vehicles in the camp before actually they start to have because in that last uh, security operation in the camp, they found automatic weapons, pistols, um, grenades, you know, the silent uh, devices for the weapons.
9: There's this quite heavy silence almost. It's very quiet now where we are. So that you can feel that tension.
15: If you look at the right, this guy, the security, who's sitting there, standing there, you know, a lot of them, they cover their faces. That's right, I was thinking that. Because they're scared to identify themselves and and they're living somewhere around here. They might be target themselves, IC cells, just, uh, you know, overnight, going to their house, shoot them, kill them and leave.
9: Okay, Fahad, He looks ah oh, this is a Fahad. I've got good news, walk.
15: Is he f- f- like a happy face. Yeah, Ch- yeah. We are. going to into the security now. Yeah. We're going to the security office now. Right, okay. Come back and let's just Okay, let's um let's switch off
9: this now, the recorder. We go inside a small office on the edge of a courtyard. There are about half a dozen intelligence officers known as the SAE. They're courteous, but there's a heaviness in the room. They're grieving the loss of their colleagues, the eight people killed in the recent bomb strike. They apologise. They say they can't take us into the camp today. There are no longer enough staff to escort us. I understand. I'm not going to push. But it means we'll have to renegotiate access and try to find Salman another day. As we drive out of Al-Hol, Fahad stops the car and pulls over. Juan points to a hill, maybe half a kilometre away. we've just stopped outside a small
15: cemetery juan yeah this is a cemetery where um, i mean originally it belonged to the town al-hol but um there is this kind of side extension of it it's been for the people who died or been killed in al whole camp go around there this is the ones are buried from a hole you see one two three that one that one they're all small they're children So this is where the children
9: who die in al Hall are buried. And there is a, yeah, just tiny mounds marked by what look like just crudely cut concrete bricks, which are marking the graves as well. It looks like actually hundreds of children are buried here. You know, I'm lost for words, actually. I think it's really, it's evidence about how dangerous alcohol is for children and how it really is a race against time to bring them back. And some of them are quite fresh graves, so children dying very, very recently.
15: Especially, you see, as you know, there's two fresh yeah. little tiny graves, It's yeah. you know, just like 25 centimetre grave. That's babies, that's a, isn't that's it? That's a baby, you know. Yeah. I don't know how to describe it.
9: It's just such a dark... There are so many dark places around here. There's the camp. There's the town where IS carried out some of its worst acts of brutality and depravity. And then you have the fact that it's continuing. It's just the death is actually continuing, and it's children.
6: That was a clip from Bloodlines from BBC Sounds and CBC Podcasts. The series was created and reported by Poonam Tanasia. Their team includes Fiona Woods, Alina Ghosh, Juan Abdi, Michelle Shepard, Fahad Fata, Damon Fairless, James Cook, and Julia Whitman. And that was my pick for the best podcast of 2023. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. Today, we've got a very special episode of Podcast Playlist. We're celebrating another year of fabulous podcasts. And all of our producers are with me today sharing their favorite shows from 2023. And now I'm turning it over to producer Julian Uzielli. Hey, Julian. Hi, Leah. So what did you pick for us?
4: I'm bringing a show called If Books Could Kill. Uh, This is hosted by Michael Hobbs and Peter Shamshiri. Both of them actually have other podcasts. Michael Hobbs has uh, Maintenance Phase. That's his health show. And then he used to be on uh, You're Wrong About. And Peter Shamshiri also uh, appears on the podcast Five to Four, which is about the U.S. Supreme Court. So... If Books Could Kill, this is a talk show, like a chat show. Mm -hmm. And in every episode, they'll review books that they describe as like airport bestsellers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, things like uh, often these are self-help books. So books like Atomic Habits, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, The Secret. So these like big name books that get a lot of media attention.
6: What is it about this show that makes it to the top
4: of your list? This might sound surprising, but it's actually not the books. <laughs> uh, I've never, I don't think I've ever read any of the books that they've covered. Um, I'm familiar with some of them, but some of them I've never even heard of. And it doesn't matter. That's what I love about the show, is you don't have to know the books or even have heard of them to to enjoy it. The thing that I love most about it is that the two hosts really have great chemistry. They make each other laugh. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Often it's, it's surprising because, you know, these are books that get a lot of uncritical media attention. And these guys, they take the time to actually read and fact check the books. And they explain exactly how and why most of these books maybe contain a small kernel of truth mm. that are wrapped in an enormous amount of filler and BS.
6: Okay, so let's have a listen. This is a clip from their episode on Hillbilly Elegy, uh, which is a memoir from U.S. Senator J.D. Vance, and it reflects on Vance's turbulent childhood and how he managed to pull himself out of poverty. Back in 2016, the book managed to woo critics. It was a huge hit from both the left and the right, and it was even made into an Oscar-nominated film. But they argue that the book is based on a reactionary premise and that Vance simplifies the root of rural white poverty and blames it on the population's culture. So let's take a listen.
2: All right, I'm going to send you a little excerpt. This is a story from when J.D. Vance was a young man working in a local grocery store. That was my first job, too. I bet you didn't work as hard as J.D. Vance, Michael.
16: (laughs) (laughs) I also learned how people gamed the welfare system. They'd ring up their orders separately, buying food with food stamps and beer, wine, and cigarettes with cash. They'd regularly go through the checkout line speaking on their cell phones. I could never understand why our lives felt like a struggle while those living off of government largesse enjoyed trinkets that I only dreamed about. Mm. Wow. American social welfare, famously too generous. Yep. This is why we have such low rates of poverty and such high rates of hammock naps.
2: (laughs) So first of all, like, yeah, food stamp fraud happens and is real. Fraud rates are very low, though. Something like 1% of benefits. Yeah. Also, some of this is not even fraud. Right. Like buying food with food stamps and then beer with cash. That's not illegal. That's just how buying things works.
16: They also do that with like (laughs) they probably buy food with food stamps and then they buy like diapers with cash because diapers aren't covered by food stamps.
2: Just because you're on food stamps doesn't mean you're not allowed to buy other things with cash. (laughs) (laughs) I love how he starts out by
16: saying. I saw poor people gaming the system, and then it's just a description of people on the verge of having a nice time.
2: Also, he says that their life feels like a struggle while those living off of government largesse enjoyed trinkets that I had only dreamed about. But later in the book, he admits that his family did receive government benefits. And in fact, it's a big part of how his grandmother put food on the table. It's just this like deserving and undeserving poor thing that he does, right? Like. Of course, my family should be receiving welfare. We're some of the good ones. We put it to good use.
16: It's like the debate online about like ghosting, like whether it's okay to just stop calling somebody that you met on like a dating app on the Internet. And it's like ghosting is exclusively something that is done to you, not (laughs) something that you do to other people. Like by definition, I've never ghosted on anyone. But it's like this behavior that it's like. The the government benefits that I get, like, that's not government largesse. That's just like helping us out in a difficult time.
5: Right. But these right. people
16: are on their cell phones, Peter. They're playing Angry Birds when they should be going to church and joining an MLM. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So I've sent you something else. Oh, okay. Okay.
16: I just read the whole thing. Okay. I, I I like where he's going with this. All right. He says... To many analysts, terms like welfare queen conjure unfair images of the lazy black mom living on the dole. Readers of this book will realize quickly that there is little relationship between that specter and my argument. I've known many welfare queens. Some of them were my neighbors and all were white. <laughs> Love it. So it's like, don't use the welfare queen stereotype on black moms. Use it on
2: everybody. You might think that I'm racist. <laughs> Wrong. I hate all poor people. Yeah. He basically says in so many words, racism is real. I'm not saying it's not real, but I want to talk about a kind of poverty that is experienced by white people. Right. And if you look at just the book, there's not much more than that. But if you look at some of his other work, there are times when he trots out white poverty as sort of like a defense against claims of discrimination, right? Right. There are poor white people too, so the relative poverty of black people isn't proof of anything.
16: That's like my favorite response to police brutality accusations, that it's like, look, they shot this white guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> like, right. right. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm not owned <laughs> by this at all.
2: Vance does hedge quite a bit. He will say, like, look, we can't discount systemic... Issues that cause poverty, right? I think that he's basically doing that to maintain an appropriate level of deniability, right? Because he never dives into that meaningfully. It's always just sort of a disclaimer, right? But of course, the primary thesis of the book, I mean, it, it's called A Memoir of a Family and Culture in Crisis, right? Right. It's not called, you know, <laughs> memoir of a region that has been systematically separated from the wealth of the rest of the country.
16: It's also very funny because if you were looking at a foreign country and you saw like there's a really poor region of like Peru or something Mm -hmm. and someone told you that like there used to be all these mines where they employed a bunch of people and then all of those employers have like shut down and there's far fewer jobs. You'd be like, oh, well, yeah, that's probably why there's so much unemployment there. But he's like, no, 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 no. Right. The attitudes of the people changed.
2: I mean, I think he has sort of like a combination of explanations. Yeah. One of them is a very bizarre ethnic explanation where he says that like the region is primarily Scots-Irish Oh, my God.
16: Heritage. Really? He's going back to like 1800s racism where it's like, oh, there's too many swarthy Italians.
13: <laughs> <laughs> the other,
2: the more sensible sort of explanation that he occasionally hints at is that you have systemic poverty causing these cultural issues to some degree, mm-hmm. but then the cultural issues perpetuate, which I think is like sort of true in a vacuum, but it's also like the whole story. right? <laughs> like the systemic poverty needs to come first. It must come first. Right. And the output is these cultural artifacts that are associated right. with poverty
6: that was a clip from if books could kill it's hosted by michael hobbs and peter Shamshiri, and that pick was chosen by our producer julian uzielli thanks julian thank you and that was the last of our best of 2023 picks and i just want to give a special thanks to the amazing group of people you heard today they listen to thousands of hours of podcasts to bring you the stories you hear regularly on this show so thank you team and thank you for joining me and just doing the work that you do
5: Thank you. Thank
6: you. Thank you. We're going to go for a drink after this. Okay. (laughs) So, what did you think? Who had the best pick? Do you think we snubbed your favorite podcast of the year? Let us know. You can find us on Facebook at CBC podcast playlist or send us an email to podcast playlist at cbc.ca you can check out all the podcasts that we feature today by going to cbc.ca slash podcast playlist and podcast playlist is kelsey cueva
5: julian Muzielli.
6: and me kate evans
5: and also me cecil fernandez
6: Sam McNulty also helped produce this episode with technical support by Kira Mahoney. Special thanks to the CBC Business and Rights team who worked with us this past year, Elena Raposo, Michelle Lingham, Sheldon Rennicks, Tim Kerswill, and Kathy Marku. And last but not least, thanks to you, the listener, for tuning in. I hope that you've learned something, maybe laughed, maybe cried even at some of the episodes that the team has put together for you this year. But most of all, I hope we've been able to open you up to a bunch of new little weird podcast worlds that you may not have known about before. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. Take care.